so far in the retreat, we've only touched briefly on working with thoughts, with attention to the the contents of the mind. Um, Offered the suggestion early on that as we settle in, it can be so helpful just to say, not now, not now. This uh, habit of thinking is so strong, we can get so easily lost that just to, not out of aversion or rejection, but just skillful means, not now, um, can be so helpful. And we've perhaps mentioned a few of the um, ways of working with thoughts by noting or labeling them and the common streams of thought that most of us have of planning and remembering, past and future. This is so much of what we fill our minds with. Um, We'll talk more about mindfulness of thinking tomorrow because it's such an important part of our practice because it's through the mind that we have the capacity to experience everything, including great suffering or the deepest profound freedom. I want to talk tonight about a particular pattern of thinking that for many of us creates a huge amount of suffering. And so to be mindful of it, to bring it into the field of our practice can be so helpful. And these are the habit patterns of judging, fixing, and comparing. One of my dear friends and colleagues, Philip Moffat, at most retreats I teach with him, I just taught one fairly recently, he will often start retreats by mentioning these habit patterns and how pervasive they are and how much suffering they cause and invite people to actually take up a practice where we formally take these vows of renouncing them. So for the duration of this retreat, I renounce judging, fixing, comparing. I wish it was that simple, but it does create a clear intention in the mind about these habits of mind. It's a bit like, you know, a guy talked about Paok teaching him or offering him advice about striving. Just don't do that. Just don't do that. But the habits are strong, right? These habits towards judging, fixing, and comparing, for most of us, they're a common thread. And as I said, um, a, a place of often real suffering. And what's interesting about it is it's optional. We do it to ourselves. It's called the second arrow. The first arrow is whatever the initial impact that causes direct suffering. But the type of thinking that I'm talking about, we do. It mightn't feel like that, but hopefully as I talk about it, you'll get a sense of of how that happens. And what's important or actually relieving about this type of thinking, is it is one, it's a form of suffering we can do something about. It's in our control to work with this pattern of mind. And it may seem to you that on retreat, on this retreat, you're doing it more than ever, right? Judging and comparing and worrying and fixing and this sort of radar that we have out for internal and external um, sense of comparison and judging. But I think it's actually, we notice it more. This pattern is usually running in our everyday lives, but we're so busy and we're so used to it, we don't notice it that much. But here in the quiet, as we get more sensitive, we start to recognize this repetitive pattern of judging, fixing, and comparing. And for most of us, we have a running commentary on our experience. Now I'm doing this. Now it's time to do that. Did that okay? That wasn't very good. This story of what? About who? Right? About me and everything I'm thinking and feeling and a lot about what are other people thinking about me and all the projections that we do in this arena. It's an endless obsession that many of us have. I saw a a cartoon of these two people on a first date. You know, that was the title of it, first date. And the one person is saying, well, that's enough about me. So tell me, what do you think about me? (laughs) 
And if we're really honest, that's a lot of what we care about, right? Our own judgments of ourselves. But then what's everyone else thinking about me? And this fear that everyone is in the same way we're looking out and judging and comparing, that they're doing the same to us. And so we can shrink a little because of that sense of this constant vigilance about um, this type of thinking. And what we start to see for most of us, this commenting and narrating isn't neutral. It tends to be critical. And it's constantly assessing how we're doing against our ideals, against our uh, projections, against the past, against what we thought should be happening, against what we think is happening for other people. This is happening all the time. And when I started to notice how pervasive and painful this kind of thinking was for me, it was here on a retreat at IMS, it wasn't new information, but it just became so clear how much pain I was causing myself with this tendency. I actually took it up as, as, a, as was one of my main kind of threads of practice. I read books about it. I actually did a workshop on it with this man, uh, Byron Brown, who's a student of A.H. Almas, who's a, a well-renowned teacher in the Bay Area who started what he calls the Diamond Approach. And it's a kind of blend of um, psychological and spiritual work and practice that uh, many of my friends are deeply involved in. And Byron Brown wrote a book called Soul Without Shame. And even though the language he sometimes uses is a little different than what we use in Buddhism, we don't consider there's such a thing as a soul, but basically it's a sense of self without shame. And in that So I did a workshop with him where we spent the whole weekend exploring all the ways this inner critic sabotages us, causes suffering. In this book, he says, judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. It's the lens through which we look at the world often. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. So working with this tendency of mind, the inner critic, is one of the powerful ways in which this practice, mindfulness practice, can be so transformative, so healing, because we get to work directly with this tendency. And the the thrust of this practice is so much about acceptance and kindness. And this kind of thinking is just the complete opposite of that. And so we get to really explore as we're deepening in this capacity to accept the present moment, to accept ourselves, how our body, our minds are, and um, come into some degree of relaxation or kindness or ease, we see more clearly the pain of this kind of thinking, this kind of judgment, and can really feel it almost physical the heart can feel like a fist, like a rock in the center of our chest, so closed off. This is such a common experience in this culture. We have a habit, a culture of this kind of thinking. And as I said, the important thing to realize is it's extra. It's optional. We create this suffering. It's not coming from outside in any direct way. And I find that in the practice meetings I have with students, so many people talk about it in different forms, the way this shapes their view of themselves and their practice and their sense of ease or lack of ease in being here, their tendency towards doubt and lack of trust for themselves. And I always say, this is not something that you are unique in, that you alone are having. So many people have 
this tendency. It's more unusual to find someone who doesn't have it. Um, That's what my experience has been. And it's not sort of incidental or separate to practice. I actually think recognizing and working with this tendency is central to our practice of mindfulness. Because as Byron Brown says, it can be one of the major barriers to growth and transformation. So we want to pay attention if this is a tendency that you have. And even if it's not um, predominant in your kinds of thinking, most of, it ha- ha- most of us have it sooner or later in one form or another. And it's suffering. So we want to pay attention. We want to come to the end of suffering. So developing self-acceptance. You could even say self-love. It's essential on this path. It's necessary for the healing of all the wounds and the trauma that we've all experienced in different forms. The loss and the grief and the pain that we've been through. And if we want to deepen in wisdom and compassion, this will limit us because it's always kind of pulling the rug out from under our um, sense of our resilience and our capacities. And what I find for most people, I know it was true for myself, that in my early years of practice, so much of my opening and deepening and insight was on a very personal level. How this mind and heart had been shaped and was constructed and how I related to other people, to the world. And it was so essential because I had such a diminished sense of self, such little faith in my capacity. But as that grew, my own confidence grew, then the more impersonal insights could start to really deepen and grow. And for most of us, we blend those two some deepening into the personal insights, how our own unique and particular mind and hearts work, coupled with the deeper or the, not deeper, but the impersonal insights. And along the journey, this blending can can last a long time. And for many of us, again, on retreat as we sit and walk and live in silence, It's really common and natural that old memories come up, things from perhaps just recent times, immediately before the retreat, even from yesterday on the retreat, will flood our experience. But sometimes from long ago, things we haven't thought of for years, we thought we'd let go of that, it wasn't troubling us anymore, and it comes up and the heart just collapses around that experience in grief or anger or fear or sadness or resentment. This sometimes, this can take the form of what we call a life review, where one after the other, these old experiences, the wounds of second grade or our first unrequited love or the abuse that we experienced in in our home life or bullying in school or whatever. This is not bad or wrong, that this happens. We need, unless this patterning, these memories come up, we can't begin the powerful and deep work of transformation that's possible. So beginning to look at the ways our minds and hearts have been shaped, where we've learned to be self-critical. We've taken in this message from our family systems, from our peers, from the culture, that um, we're not okay, we're not good enough. And we've internalized that message that we're deficient in some way. And this is really heartbreaking that this happens, that it's happened to most of us, if not all of us, in some way. Jules Pfeiffer is a cartoonist, and I don't think this was a cartoon, but he said something, he said, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, and my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) And so, for many of us, we're this mix, right? We've been shaped by these systems, these messages we've had, but in that shaping also learnt 
you could say even a contempt, a dislike, uh, an unappreciation of who we actually are. And this can happen, you know, especially when we're young, but it doesn't stop there. But we internalize these messages about how we are, how we look, what our body shape is, things that we don't have much control about, what our hair is like, or the color of our eyes or the shape of our face. Someone said something once and it just cut through us and we've been self-conscious and vulnerable about that aspect of ourselves. Our singing voice. How many of you were shut down, sort of stand at the back and just mouth the words? And we hold that, right? To this day, we feel shy about singing. All of the ways, um, the endeavors that we've tried and we felt criticized or you know, sent to the back, not chosen, not, not appreciated, and can even take on the belief that this is actually an appropriate attitude, this attitude of being self-critical, kind of snarky about ourselves, self-deprecating. And when it gets ossified, solidified, it can harden into some belief that in some basic way we're not okay. There's something deeply wrong with us. We don't deserve to be here. And that can lead to a deep feeling of of shame, which is so um, disempowering. It, It doesn't let us take our seat at the table. We're always hiding away, not feeling worthy, accepted, okay, in some deep way. And so beginning to recognize and know and work with these messages that we've taken in, it's essential. But we need to see them. And also, for me, it was really helpful to have a sense of how these messages got formed. Because for me, understanding that was a deep part of how I could see that they weren't some inherent part of who I was. I learnt this. I learnt to relate to myself this way. If we don't bring them into the light of mindfulness, as Byron Brown said, they will continue to diminish our capacity to more freedom and happiness because it's always a thread running through of not possible for me. Everyone else, yes, but not me. And this is such a central or important part of practice. The Buddha talked about it. He called it mana in Pali. And it's usually translated as conceit. But we tend to think of conceit like pride. It's always I'm better than. But in in the Buddhist terminology, this word mana means any kind of comparing. So better than, prideful self-view. Worse than, critical self-view. But even uh, claiming I'm, I'm the same as is also a form of comparing. And it's one of the last fetters to go before full enlightenment. So I always say we want to learn how to work with it because it's going to be with us for a while. Of course, at that level, it's not this harsh, critical, judging voice, but just this reified sense of self that hasn't quite opened to the fullness of the possibility of freedom from suffering at that level. In the Mana Parinya Sutta, in the Itivutaka, the Buddha said, practitioners, without directly knowing and completely understanding conceit or mana, without dispassion for it and giving it up, you can't end suffering. But by directly knowing and completely understanding conceit, having dispassion for it and giving it up, you can end suffering. This is the power of this kind of thinking. It can both entrap us in suffering or by uh, releasing ourselves from it, find the full potential of freedom. So how did this judging voice come into being. Again, I really liked what Byron Brown had to say. He said, 
As children, we had to learn social norms to get along, develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it can become overactive or overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. We can come to see now from a place of more wisdom that this voice is not so helpful because it limits us and controls us. And the basic message of the judging voice is, I'm not good enough and people won't like me just as I am. So we have to hide some parts of ourselves to try and be lovable, but there's always that contortion going on. And Byron Brown said it follows that with, and you'll never change. You haven't got what it takes. So this um, taking away, of disempowering us can lead to a real feeling of helplessness in, if we believe this voice. And so again from Byron Brown, he says, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of those functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge, and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So I think many of us can relate to that, this internalized voice that we hear, you know, from our third grade teacher, from our parents, always criticizing and commenting on what we're doing. We need to find a different way to access the wisdom that we think the judge is providing, but it's not actually. And so, as I said, for me, it was helpful to actually to look back and, and just get a sense, again, not interrogating all of our past, but most of us have a sense of when these voices started to get internalized. And even it's a very general sense. In this workshop that I did with Byron Brown, um, it was interactive, and so we did dyads where the question was, a repeating question, if you know that form, what's right about judging? And in a dyad with a partner, and you're given a question, and one person asks a question, 
and the next per- the other person responds with whatever comes to mind and the first person says thank you and asks the exact same question again and so you repeat this continue in this way for many many minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes until you you run through the obvious answers and you have to touch into something deeper it can be quite profound this practice of diets with repeating questions. And so it was really revealing for me to see all the ways I hadn't really recognized that the judge, the judging voice served me, why I had continued to give it space in my mind and heart. Because if it didn't serve us, habits get formed because they serve us. They shortcut something, they give us a a quick, an immediate response to any choice or question we might have to make. So we feed, we've fed this pattern. If we didn't, it would, to use Buddhist terminology, starve. But we have fed it, we have embraced it, we have believed it, we have let it tell us who we are and who we are not. And what I started to see is, even as painful as the judging voice is, there's a pleasantness to it. There's a hook in it. There's something that catches us when we indulge in this kind of thinking. It can be as simple as we feel we know what's right. You know, it's the voice of what's right and wrong. And even if I'm terrible, at least I know that I'm terrible, right? I'm I'm clear about that. Those people are so hopeless, they don't even know how hopeless they are but I know how hopeless I am. So even in that, there's a kind of, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm that smart anyway. I might be terrible, but I know that much. And of course, as, as Byron Brown said, it can really offer a sense of safety or control. We know we won't, you know, get too wild because there's this voice always saying, be careful, don't do that. You know, someone mightn't like you or approve of what you're doing or, or you might bring trouble on yourself. So it, it, it offers a sense of safety. But as we look at why does it benefit us to judge ourselves negatively, to be self-critical? And what I've seen, and I think other people can have felt this too, when we have a view of ourselves of un- being unworthy that we've internalized from, out, from external role models or authority figures, even the culture, just agreeing with that, there's a kind of letting go, peace, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's just how I am. It's like, yep. And there's a kind of hopelessness or giving up that can be reassuring. It's interesting to look at these patterns. I've seen the pattern that if I sort of preemptively project that people won't like me, then I don't have to like them. And I can kind of, you know, crawl back into my very familiar shell of defensiveness. And I don't have to expose myself. And I also don't have to work with my aversion because I've already shut everyone out, right? It's just a safer place to be. And we can see ways that we've internalized the message of if I'm, if I'm not like this or if I'm too much that, I'm not lovable. So I have to keep contorting myself to fit some idea I have of what's lovable. But I feel that then maybe I am lovable because I'm repressing aspects of myself that I think other people won't like. And I know for me a big one was it justified basically hiding as an introvert, a shy person, it was like I already projected that people wouldn't like me or wouldn't want to listen to me, so I could just hide in the corner, not put my hand up in class, not you know, have any idea that I could you know, be a leader or sit up in front of a room of 100 people and, and speak. It, that thought would have been inconceivable to me you know, in my teens, in my young adulthood. But we can work with this. Judging others negatively, it's easier to see there what the the hook might be, right? This sense of superiority. Um, You know, oh, 
I, I might, you know, we might still be judging ourselves, but as I said before, it's like, but at least I'm not like that, you know, those people over there. And even sitting in our self-judgment, we can still feel superior, separate, different from others. And in that judging, often we don't have to look at places we feel inadequate when we judge others negatively. What about when we judge others as being better than us, superior to us? Again, I can see the sense of safety when I feel diminished that what I spoke about before, I don't have to try. Someone else is in charge, not me. I couldn't do that. They're so much better than me. I couldn't, whatever it is in the field that we're working in. And so it gives us permission to not try, to not expose ourselves to failure. So that's safety. And sometimes you can see it, it, it validates feelings we have of disparity or unfairness, envy or jealousy, a victimhood even. Oh, they're always, they're, they've got so much more than me, it's not fair. And we can create a sense of self about that. So there's lots of subtle layers in this that for me was helpful to look at because unless, again, we bring this into the light of awareness, this constant narration flavored by negativity is just always there. It's the soup we're swimming in a lot of the time. So familiar, we don't even, we're not even aware that it's happening, and we, so we don't feel its impact. We don't feel how it's shaping our minds and hearts, because as we're in the, having those kinds of thoughts, what we think they are are rational observations, this is how those people are, this is what I'm like, we don't see them as, you know, conditioned judgments that we're making that don't actually have a real basis in reality. And we really need to understand this. Just because we think or feel something doesn't mean it's true. And this isn't to deny our feelings, our emotions. They do have a reality to them, but what they're predicated on, what they're based on, can be completely distorted, completely you know, seen through these lenses that I spoke about this morning of distortion. So we need to be aware of how, our, or how we're relating to these thoughts in the mind that we're taking to be so true I know what's right, I know what's wrong, this is good, this is bad, whether we're taking you know, us to be good and them bad, or vice versa. Again, another of the cartoons that tickled me, a couple arguing, and one is standing over the other one saying, well, if it doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong, why don't I be right and you be wrong? <laughs> We're so convinced, right, that what we're thinking and feeling is the truth of things. And if only we could convince people of, to see things our way, the world would be a much better place. To start to see the distortion that can be happening in our own minds and hearts, shaped often by this tendency to judgment and criticism. So exploring even further this tendency to self-criticism. As I said, it can be a little simpler to get why we might judge others negatively. As they say, the best defense is a good offense. It's like I've already labeled everyone. I know where they fit in my hierarchy. It's kind of there's a a pleasure or a satisfaction or a, a sense of safety in that. But criticizing ourselves really to look at this patterning in the mind. It was so interesting for me to to recognize or to look for, as I said before, the hook or the pleasant Vedana. And we'll talk about Vedana as a practice in the coming days, this quality or flavor of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. 
that's um, with every moment of experience, that these judging thoughts, even when they feel painful, again, there's some kind of hook in them, some distorted way in which they makes, it makes sense to us to have this negative self-view. Or it served us as some way in the past, but we know it doesn't serve us now, but it keeps coming up. It keeps happening. And so, as I said, we can internalize this message that's come from outside, from authority figures. And when we were being shaped, formed as, as young, as children, as young adults, young whatever age, we often didn't have the capacity to see clearly that this was not the truth or skillful or in our best interest, this message of you're not good enough, why can't you be more like so-and-so? You know, they're getting these grades or they're excelling in this way and you're too dramatic or you're too quiet or whatever the message was. And so we took it in because that, that was the way we could survive. Otherwise, you know, we'd be going against our authority figures and that, that was too dangerous. We couldn't do that. We didn't have the capacity to understand what was happening. So we take that in as a protection. Oh yes, there's agreement with that. And we get shaped. We get literally physically and emotionally shaped by that, those external messages. Mindfulness and our um, caring, a continuous attention to the heart, to the mind. As I said before, these the way we've been shaped can begin to come to the surface and this possibility of transforming this patterning. It's so powerful. Only by bringing it into the light of mindfulness. Even though it's painful, we want to see it. That's the beginning of the journey of transformation. I can remember being on um, a six-week retreat, this retreat, um, a number of years ago, and uh, determining to do metta intensively during the the six weeks of this retreat. And at that time, um, I don't know if there were metta retreats even being offered, but I'd never been on one. So I didn't know a huge amount about the practice, just a little bit of what people had told me. And I thought it sounded like the worst possible way one could spend one's meditation time to sit and walk repeating these inane phrases (laughs) of happiness and well-being. It was, you know, it felt like you'd be living in a Hallmark card of, you know, unicorns and rainbows and may everything just be wonderful day after day, throwing flowers around. Um, I have a tendency to cynicism, so it didn't seem like something that was a natural fit for me. But through one many reasons, but I finally realized actually it could be what the tonic that this closed heart actually needed. So I did determine that I would come and do a metta retreat. And so sitting just where you are, doing metta intensively all day long. And because it wasn't a metta retreat, none of the instructions, I wasn't getting kind of a lot of support or skillful means apart from just the meetings like you're having with my teacher, 15 minutes every two or three days. Um, So I had to figure a lot of stuff out by myself. And it wasn't easy. And so I'd go for my meetings and I'd say, well... It's kind of a little warm, you know, a little glimmer of friendliness, you know. I'm not hating the person I'm working with. And, you know, my reports would be variations of that. I was getting concentrated, so that was one real benefit. But I couldn't say the metta was doing anything that I thought it should be doing. Again, talk about judging and comparing all my ideals about what I thought should be happening or what I thought the teachers thought should be happening for me. And I can remember going up and seeing Joseph up there in his room and reporting this kind of, you know, it's okay. And and I I said, you know, maybe I should change the person I'm sending Metta to. It's really not working. It's kind of lukewarm and nothing much is happening. And Joseph, I'm sure, said something like, sure, that's probably a good idea. Why don't you try that? Sort of, okay, I'll try that. But as one does, 
as I trudged down the steps out to my walking path, which is down here. I always walk down near the parking lot. I completely, I'm sure, changed both what Joseph said and I projected what he was thinking, which was, oh, for God's sake, try something, you know. <laughs> you know, anything different, maybe something will happen. And, you know, you know, at least, you know, you might move the dial a little bit. And so I just, that was what I thought had just happened in this practice meeting. And it just fed my feelings of insecurity, of judgment. Why did I think I could do better? I'm unlovable. I've never loved. No one will ever love me. This is hopeless. And this was, you know, 10 days into a six-week retreat. I was like, I've got to get out of here. This is so painful. I remember looking at the school bus that goes by. That said, <laughs> I was like... If you think being on a school bus is happier than where you are, it's pretty bad. I was, you know, desperate. And I was just trudging up and down with these, these thoughts of hopeless and, you know, self-abuse and critical judging thoughts. And then there was this moment of grace that I have to think came from the metta practice. I don't think I quite clicked that at the time, but in looking back where I had this thought, you know, this is such a familiar place. You could spend a few hours here, maybe days, weeks, you know, in this place, this abyss of self-pity and criticism. But at some point, sooner or later, you'd probably come out, right? You, You always do. Something shifts, something changes internally, externally, and the mood brightens and lifts. What would it take to get from here to there without having to spend hours or days or weeks beating myself up. And I realized what would have to happen is I had to accept this is what my metta practice looks like. It doesn't have bells and whistles and golden light and rainbows. It's just a kind of very quiet friendliness. And with that, I could take a breath and just pick the phrases up again. And I'd love to be able to say, and then the heavens parted, and you know, and it didn't. My practice continued pretty much that way for some time. But just accepting where I was allowed me to continue, and deepening did happen in all kinds of profound ways I never could have expected. But it could only come through self-acceptance not believing those thoughts of judgment and self-pity and self-hatred. And so I, I you know, got to see through that clear choice. And it's not as simple as this, but in some ways it is. What do you want to believe? The story of yourself as deficient and unworthy and unlovable? And where does that get you? Or the story that you have inherent goodness and kindness, and warmth, and compassion. Which one? You know, and again, it's, I know it's not as simple as that, but sometimes it is. Sometimes we can see the lure of going down that path, as I said, that, that pleasantness, that addictive quality, the familiarity of it, and say, no, no, I don't want to do that to myself. But we have to be willing to feel the pain of that, not just repress it. I like this um, quote from Marianne Williamson. She said, One day I looked at something in myself that I had been avoiding because it was too painful. Yet once I did, I had an unexpected surprise. Rather than self-hatred, I was flooded with compassion for myself because I realized the pain necessary to develop that coping mechanism to begin with. All the ways we've shut ourselves down. Feel the pain of it. And if we truly feel pain, suffering, that's the doorway to compassion, not to more self-hatred. If we feel it with wisdom and compassion. So how do we work directly with this inner critic A really important fact is 
They are just thoughts in the mind. That's all they are. As, as, as the same weight as what's for dinner. If we can see them that way, if we believe them, then everything is solid and this is who I am and what I'm like and what, what I'm not like and you know, all of that. It just you know, all follows along. But when you reckon, oh, just thinking... And in that moment, with this clear recognition, the thought can literally evaporate without a trace. Again, we're addicted to this kind of thinking, so that's not easy, but it is possible. They are impermanent. The thoughts of judging you had yesterday, where are they today? Even of a moment ago, right? They're gone. And they're also conditioned just like everything on this relative realm, meaning they've, they're the result of different causes and conditions, and when those conditions change, those thoughts will change. If we don't continue to feed, feed them, they will get starved. It may take time, but this is definitely possible. And as I've said about these old memories coming up, from recent or long ago past, we can learn to open to them, just like we've talked about the last couple of days, opening to the emotions in the body, not rejecting them, but also not solidifying them. Here they are, this pain, this loss, this fear, this memory. Hold it with some spaciousness, with some kindness, with acceptance. Whatever happened in these old memories, you did the best you could with the tools that you had at the time, with the resources you had at the time. Beating yourself up does not help. And so forgiving ourselves for times when we've hurt ourselves or hurt others, when we haven't taken care of ourselves, we may do some forgiveness practice. It's so helpful. As I always say, you can't change the past, but if you change how you relate to the past, it gets transformed. If you can have an attitude of forgiveness or acceptance or uh, compassion about our experience. As Byron, Byron Brown says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and your own judge. And a big part of this journey, because they're really intertwined as much as we might be critical of ourselves, usually that's in parallel with judging others, a feeling of separation, of not connected, of not empathy, of not um, appreciation. And I recently, a while ago read a, a book by Shaquille Chowdhury on deep diversity, and I think it's a, one of, a really good book on understanding the, the formations of mind that lead us to create this sense of separation of self and other. And a big part of his book is talking about using mindfulness to bring awareness to the perceptions and unconscious bias that leads to othering, that leads to prejudice, that leads to this sense of labeling and belittling or not understanding Whatever we see is different. And he says, all of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions are more successful in reducing bias. And this is this implicit bias that we're kind of, again, shaped by through everything we've experienced to believe certain things about certain types of people. 
this implicit bias we sometimes don't even realize it's happening. He says, meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes one with such discrepancies. And so this is this discrepancies between what our values are. We want to be good, kind, generous people, and yet we act in ways that aren't that often towards ourselves, but in other ways towards other people. And so beginning to look at that patterning is so important, so helpful. So we can use our mindfulness to notice this discrepancy between what we truly value and how we're manifesting in the world, sometimes on these really subtle levels. So really helpful. Recommend that book. And I think when we're working with with judging, with the judging mind, it's really helpful to bring humor in because it can be very painful to see the extent of this form of thinking if, if you have a tendency towards it. I always remember Jack Cornfield saying early on, start counting your judgments, each one. By the time you get to 463, you realize they're just happening. Again, you're not doing it. You're not choosing to do it. It's a, it's a, a conditioned habit of the mind. You know, have a way of talking back to that judging voice. Thanks for your opinion, but I'm doing okay. You know, I got this. I had one uh, student I was working with where she personified her judging voice as a, a stuffed dinosaur. So it had these big, sharp teeth, but it was kind of squishy and cuddly and purple. So, see, you know, start to play with it a little. Have some compassion and humor about this tendency. The, I said earlier, the mind has no shame. Really helpful to see the layers of the judging. It doesn't just come like pristine, you know, in a little box. It's fueled by doubt and restlessness and aversion and wanting. All of the ways in which we tend to kind of um, compare ourselves with past, present, future, others. Feel it in the body. Whenever there's judging, I know for me a little bit tension here and a kind of... uh, in the body. We want to feel it. And that for me now is a red flag. I feel that kind of constriction. It's like, oh, judging happening, judging happening. And so drop into the body so we don't get so caught in the content and start to believe it. It's like, oh, here's this habit pattern. Drop into the body, feel the suffering, not so caught in identifying with that kind of thinking. And when we start to pay attention like this, we start to see the automatic nature of judging. I mean, it's just like conditioned. I can again remember being on retreat here, this time period where I really saw the pervasiveness of judging. I was just kind of horrified and um, how much it filled my mind. And one of the, you know, I got highlighted because I started to see every time I walked into the dining room, these same 10 thoughts of judging would happen. And this is before they remodeled it. For those of you who haven't, who fairly new to IMS, it used to be much smaller, much darker, and much dingier. And I'd just walk in, and I'd see the toasters, and I'd say, there aren't enough toasters. <laughs> I'd look at the condiments. Condiments are too tightly packed together. You know, you can't, you're jostling, you're jostling to get any of this stuff. You know, the chairs are too tight, the lighting is dull, the floor is dingy. And after a while, it's like, I get it, I get it. I had these, but it was like, boom, 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 I just walk in and they would just play themselves out. I'm like, so I did everything, you know, I felt it in the body, I felt the fear, the tension. It didn't change as soon as I saw the toaster. Not enough toasters. It's like, give up already with the toasters. I still think there aren't enough toasters, by the way. But I don't have to be judgmental about it. So if you've heard Joseph Goldstein talk about judging, he would give the advice, whenever you have a judging thought, add, and the sky is blue. So I thought I would try that. 
and I'd say, judging, judging, and the sky is blue. And I'd go, you're damn right the sky is blue, and there aren't enough toasters, you know. It didn't work for me. So what I came up with on this retreat, I'm an animal lover. I may have said this already. If you are outdoors, you will have seen chipmunks, and chipmunks are cute, right? So I determined, I made a practice that every time I had a judging thought, I would add the sentence, and chipmunks are cute. And it was kind of like just diverting my, like, chipmunks. (laughs) Oh, they're so cute and so vulnerable. And I'll just take the attention away, you know, from landing on these judging thoughts. So play with it. Be kind to yourself, whatever works. The more we see, as I said originally, we are creating this form of suffering. No one is doing it to you. Yes, it's been deeply conditioned. I'm not saying it's easy. You don't just, like Paul, don't do it. We could all go home if that worked. Um, But as we begin to more and more deeply affirm our wish and intention towards kindness... You know, we're here practicing metta, chanting the metta sutta. Start here, kindness to yourself, and to see what's around us is, especially here, and I know the world is a difficult and challenging place, but let's just start here, is a lot of goodness and kindness. Let it in. A friend who's a Dhamma student and a, a, has been a colleague, Rob Cook, has gotten into poetry writing in his retirement. He just sent me a bunch of poems, and this is one that caught my eye. It's called, What Darkness Taught Me. He said, Light was still within me, even when I couldn't see it. Lo- life was still a blessing, even when I didn't realize it. Love was still around me, even when I wouldn't let it in. And I could somehow find my way, even when I felt most lost. We just need to find a way to feel the pain, have that be the doorway to compassion and kindness, to see the ephemeral conditioned nature of these thoughts. They come and they go, They're not who we are. They don't tell the story of who we are as we affirm our wish to be happy and whole and good and kind. That's the choice we make over and over again. And we more and more let go of these stories of deficiency and not okayness. We talk a lot about kindness It's so simple, simple word, but so profound. Start here, being kind. And then it becomes how we do this practice and how we live our lives. Kind, compassionate, accepting. So let's let the words settle. Thank you for your attention. As an act of kindness to yourself, take yourself out for some walking in the cool night air. Get some cup of tea or do some stretching or maybe it's even time. The kind thing is to take rest. But another kind thing is to come back and join your voices with others in the evening chanting. Is it going to be the Karaniya Metta Sutta?
who knows? <laughs> but it'll be something that uplifts the heart, and that can be such an act of kindness to join your voices with others with these wholesome intentions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.